The theologian Michael Frost said, the Christian experience is not primarily formed by our liturgy, doctrine, or ecclesiology, as important as those might be. We are formed by the dangerous stories of our great hero. When Jesus walked the earth, he was living in a pre-Christian culture. Uh, Christianity had little influence or effect on the culture as a whole at that point because it was struggling to exist as a marginalized part of society. Today, we're living in a post-Christian culture where Christianity has little influence or effect on the culture as a whole anymore because it is increasingly becoming a marginalized part of society. In other words, uh, never in our lifetime, at least in America, has our society been so much like the one that Jesus lived in in terms of the lack of Christian influence on popular culture as a whole. And yet, in terms of making disciples... The church has never been more effective as it was when it was marginalized in the first century, which is a fact that has potentially profound implications for the marginalized church in the 21st century. Okay, because first of all, the same opportunities those early followers of Christ had to make disciples back then, we have today. And secondly, the same spirit that lived inside of those first century Christians that gave them the power and the courage to make disciples so effectively in a culture that was hostile toward the gospel back then is the same spirit that lives inside of Christians today. In other words, we have the same opportunities around us and the same power within us as followers of Christ to do everything in our society today that the followers of Christ did in the Bible back then. So why don't we? Why don't we live today like they did then? Why don't we do the things they did? Why, why don't we act the way they acted? Why, why don't we give up what they gave up? Why don't we embrace what they embraced? What was it about the followers of Christ in those early centuries of the church that had such a powerfully multiplying effect which spread the Christian faith like a consuming wildfire across the cultural landscape even when marginalized and at times under heavy persecution? What was so different about the disciples of Christ back then from the disciples of Christ today? Because again, The Holy Spirit that we have today is the exact same Holy Spirit they had then. He hasn't changed. We have. Right? If the brokenness in the culture is the same, and the opportunities for ministry are the same, and the one who gives us the power to carry out that ministry is the same, then what has changed? It's us. We are what's different. Christians today are not living our lives the way Christians did then by and large, which of course uh, raises the question, why? Why don't disciples of Christ live today the way disciples did in the Bible? And the answer is because we are not willing to give up what they gave up in order to embrace what they embraced. We're not. 
Okay, when the biblical writers talk about suffering for the sake of Christ, the suffering they were referring to was as much or more about personal sacrifice in this life as it ever was about persecution and martyrdom. Right? Because first of all, when you look at how they described in their own words having to die at the hands of others, it doesn't sound anything like the way they described having to die to themselves. Andrew, one of the 12 disciples of Christ, was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. And after seven soldiers whipped him severely, they tied his body to that cross with cords to prolong his agony and death. And yet later, his followers reported that when he was led toward that cross, he saluted it and said these words, I have long desired and expected this happy hour. Early church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified on an upside down cross in Rome, that he actually requested to be crucified on an inverted cross because he did not consider himself worthy to die as Jesus had. And of course, uh, the Apostle Paul famously said from prison, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. See, those early disciples were not afraid of death. Indeed, they longed for it. To be with Jesus Christ once again was something they looked forward to. So what was the suffering, the tribulation they so often spoke of having to endure with patience? It was the suffering that was and is part and parcel with self-denial, self-sacrifice, the laying down of yourself in this life for others. Later in the same letter to the Philippian church, the Apostle Paul describes all of his accomplishments in this life before he came to Christ. All the respect and honor and religious pedigree and status and power that he gained in this world. He said, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Philippians 3, 4 through 6. And yet look at how he describes having to give all of that up. Verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says he suffered the loss of all things. What things? The respect and honor and religious pedigree and status and power that he'd gained in this world. So in the same letter, Paul describes dying at the hands of others as gain, but dying to himself for others as suffering. Why? Because it is infinitely harder to embrace the idea of dying to yourself, which is something you decide to do, than it is to embrace the idea of being martyred at the hands of others, which is something someone else decides to do. Yet even at that, those early disciples, they were, they were willing to suffer the loss of their own desires, their own ambitions, their own futures. They were willing to give up living life their own way 
in order to embrace the way of Christ. And that's the difference between them and us. Because we want what we want. And we're not willing to give up any of it for Jesus because as disciples in the modern church, we've convinced ourselves that we should be able to have both. Everything we want for us and everything that Jesus wants for us without having to give anything up, without having to die to ourselves. While those early disciples, they gave up everything they'd planned for themselves in order to embrace the way of Christ, the way of self-sacrifice, the way of love in order to live their lives just like Jesus. They wanted their lives to look just like Jesus's life. They wanted to do the things that Jesus did and for the same reasons that he did them, which is the very definition, by the way, of what it means to be a disciple of someone else. You want your life to look like theirs. And so look, if you call yourself a Christian, which is to call yourself a disciple of Christ, then ask yourself this question. Do I actually want my life to look like Jesus' life? Do I want to live a dangerous, risky, radical life full of sacrifice and even suffering? And yet also a life full of miracles and power and peace and hope and faith and love and a deeper sense of belonging that can be had any other way. Do I really want my life to look like Jesus's life? And if so, what do I need to sacrifice for that to happen? What do I need to suffer the loss of for my life to look just like Jesus's dangerous risky, radical, uncompromising, and undeniably world-changing life. Well, that's what we're going to find out today in our story as we continue working our way through 1 Samuel as King Saul's son, Jonathan, is faced with this decision once and for all to either choose the world's way, King Saul's way, the way of personal gain, or to choose God's way, the way of self-sacrifice, yes, but also the way of love and of power and of transformation. It was the only way he could ever fully embrace the life that he was created to live and to be sure, just as it was for those early disciples and just as it is for you and me today, God's way for Jonathan was dangerous. It was risky and it was radical because it meant he would have to die to himself to his loyalty to this world, to his reputation in this world, even to his future as the world saw it as heir to the throne. Why? So that his life would point us to someone else's life. That was the whole point. That's why those early disciples were able to point people to Jesus because they lived just like he did. And do you understand that is the only way? The only way your life will ever point anyone else to Jesus Christ is when you live it just like he did. Otherwise, you understand everything that we say we believe, it's just talk. It's useless talk. Because, listen, if, if how we live our lives doesn't actually look just like Jesus' life, then I'm just telling you, no one cares what we believe. 
Honestly, if, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, a disciple of Christ, and yet your life looks nothing like his, then no one will ever care what you believe in. And so as we pick this story up where we left off last time, uh, let's pay attention to the hard choices that Jonathan makes for his own life as he comes to understand that his life, his entire life, was ultimately meant to point people to someone else's life. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 20. We'll begin with verses 24 through 29. So David hid himself in the field. When the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I've found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So just to set the scene, and if you were here last week or you watched online, then you'll remember that Jonathan and David have come up with a plan to try and determine King Saul's disposition toward David. Since out of jealousy, of course, knowing that David would be Israel's next king, Saul has been trying to kill him. And yet at his last attempt on David's life, Saul was overcome by the Spirit of God and ended up prophetically praising and worshiping God at Naoth, the encampment where Israel's prophets would go and study under Samuel. And so David, not knowing if that experience changed Saul for the better or not, is hiding out in a field while Saul hosts the new moon festival, which marked the beginning of the month in the lunar calendar. And it was one of the, the principal festivals throughout the Old Testament that called for special sacrifices, which means not only was it an important festival, but as a member of the royal court and the royal family, remember David's married to Saul's daughter, it was also very important for David to be there. So Jonathan and David come up with the story that Jonathan will tell Saul explaining David's absence, that David's eldest brother Eliab calls David to attend the sacrifice with his father's family at Bethlehem instead of celebrating with the king. And the idea is if Saul is well disposed toward David, then he will be happy that David was able to spend time with his father's family. But if his desire is still to kill David, then Saul will be infuriated that David is not there. And that is how Jonathan and David will know whether David needs to stay or to go, to run away. And so this festival begins and Saul sits on the seat by the wall. In other words, with his back to the wall opposite the entrance to the city with Abner, the commander of his armies by his side and his spear, as we'll see in his hand, which may seem like random details, but actually they're quite significant because Saul was completely paranoid when it came to David. Saul knew already that David was God's choice to be the next king. And so he expected David to overthrow him. And so Saul, sitting with his back protected by a wall and his military commander beside him and his spear in his hand, and he carried at his home and even here at the feast, it all speaks to Saul's state of mind, right? He's gripped 
by the paranoid delusion that David is going to attempt to assassinate him and take his throne, which was probably exacerbated by the fact that David was not there at the feast. And so when David doesn't show up that first day, Saul sits in the safest position he can with his military commander beside him and with his spear in his hand and decides to give David the benefit of the doubt for one day. Right? Saul thinks to himself, maybe David is unclean. Okay? And the, the Torah law prohibited the consumption of ritual meals during times of ritual uncleanness, according to uh, Leviticus 7, 20 and 21. And there were many things in the law that uh, could make a person unclean, right? Even accidental contact with anything else that was ritually unclean or detestable, including certain insects, seeds that had come in contact with a dead animal or some other unclean person or a human corpse and on and on and on the list went of things that could make you unclean. And so it was totally plausible that David had become unclean. And that is why he's not at the meal as far as Saul is concerned. The second day, however, all bets are off because the second day of the festival was a non-holy day, which means that meal could be eaten by someone who was ceremonially unclean. And yet David still hasn't shown up. And so now Saul wants to know where David is. Why is not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Notice how he refers to David. For the first time, Saul refers to his son-in-law as the son of Jesse. A sure sign that Saul no longer considers David a member of his own family. And in response, Jonathan presents the cover-up story. That David was observing a sacrifice in Bethlehem with his father and brothers and has therefore asked leave of Jonathan to miss this festival with Saul the king, which actually says more about Jonathan than it does about David. Because it's one thing for David to ask permission to miss an important sacrificial meal with the king, right? It's something altogether different for Jonathan to give him that permission without even mentioning it to the king first, let alone asking the king's permission and of course, that's all assuming the story was even true, which we know it's not. And so what Jonathan has done is even more subversive to the king's interests because he has betrayed the trust of the king for the sake of someone else. Okay, this was a defining moment for Jonathan who was making a choice as to where his loyalties would forever lie. And in that moment... Jonathan sacrificed his loyalty to this world for the sake of loyalty to David, right? Because he could not be loyal to both. You understand, he had to choose either Saul's way, the way of this world, or God's way, because he couldn't have it both ways. It had to be one or the other. Just like Jesus who at the height of his popularity was being hailed by the masses as their soon-to-be conquering king because they expected him to do what they wanted him to do, to overthrow the Roman government and vanquish the Roman occupation, installing himself as the new military and political leader of Israel. But Jesus didn't come to fulfill the desires of this world. 
He came to fulfill the desires of his father. And so he chose loyalty to the father rather than loyalty to this world. And listen, if you honestly want your life to look just like Jesus's life, then you have to choose who it is you're going to be loyal to because you cannot be loyal to this world and loyal to Jesus at the same time. You have to choose one or the other. It cannot be both. You cannot be a disciple of this world and a disciple of Jesus at the same time. Those two loyalties are mutually exclusive. Jesus was very clear about that when he said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6, 24. This is the difference between those early disciples and us today. Because we're convinced that we're special. That we're different. That even though Jonathan couldn't serve two masters, and even though Jesus couldn't serve two masters, and even though those early disciples couldn't serve two masters, we've convinced ourselves that somehow we can. And so we live our lives with our loyalties split between two kingdoms the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. And then we wonder why our lives as Christians in the 21st century don't look like the lives of Christians in the first century. Why don't we see the powerful supernatural moves of God today that they saw then? Why aren't there more miracles today like there were then? Why don't we seem to carry the same power or authority today as they did then? Why aren't souls being added to our numbers daily, sometimes by the thousands like they were then? It's because those early disciples' lives looked just like Jesus' life. And when you see how effective Jesus was just by himself, It stands to reason that as you multiply the number of people walking around who live just like Jesus, then the effect his life had on others is going to multiply as well every time a new disciple is made. It's disciples making disciples that spreads like wildfire across the cultural landscape of our society. But it only works when your life actually looks like his, which is the sign of a true disciple not perfect mind you we all know that we're still human but ever becoming more and more and more like him but listen the only way you will ever become more and more and more like Jesus is by letting go of more and more and more of the loyalties that you have to this world and instead giving all your loyalty to him I'm just telling you This is one of the defining struggles in the modern church today. Christians who want to accept the ways of Christ without denying the ways of this world. Of course, the only way you can do that without denying your own conscience is by reinterpreting God's word to mean something other than what it actually says. And we do that. And in the process, we pervert the truth in order to maintain our loyalties to this world and still call ourselves Christians. It's a gospel that causes no offense. A gospel that creates no conviction, that requires no transformation and produces believers whose lives are indistinguishable from those unbelievers. I saw a quote the other day. It said, 
If the Bible calls it a sin, your opinion doesn't matter. Okay, if you're serious about being a disciple of Christ, then you have to be serious about shaping your life after his. Which, by the way, is a dangerous, risky, and radical way to live your life, to be sure, because it's uncompromising when it comes to where your loyalties lie. Because you have to choose one or the other. This world or Jesus. The great Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers said, in a conflict of loyalty, obey Jesus at all costs. Let's keep reading verses 30 through 34. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So as soon as Jonathan shares uh, the excuse as to why David is not there, Saul comes unhinged in a fit of rage. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? So Saul accuses Jonathan of shaming himself. You've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame. And then he accuses Jonathan of shaming his own mother, Saul's wife, and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. And of course, he says that uh, right after Saul himself calls her a perverse, rebellious woman which doesn't seem like it makes any sense, but actually that's a, a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew saying, an ancient saying that meant you perverse rebel. And then he reminds Jonathan, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you or your kingdom shall be established, which is true. In other words, as long as David lives, you, Jonathan, you'll never be king. So stop protecting David. And then after cursing out his own son, completely humiliating him in front of everyone and trying to shame him into turning on David, Saul says, therefore send and bring him to me for he shall surely die. And in response, Jonathan asks a completely reasonable question. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Which is when we find out just how out of control Saul really is as he then tries to kill Jonathan, his own son, by hurling his spear at him. And now it's Jonathan's turn to be enraged, but not for the reason you'd think. And honestly, this is the most amazing part of the whole story. Because Jonathan storms away in anger, but not because his father just completely humiliated him in front of everyone, or because his father just tried to kill him, but because Jonathan was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Because his father had disgraced David. Jonathan was far more concerned about David's reputation in the kingdom than he was about his own. To the point that he storms off, unable to eat the entire day, not because of how his father just treated him, but because of how his father is continually treating David. 
And as scholar Robert Bergen says, Jonathan's reaction thus serves as one of the purest displays of human loyalty found in the annals of human history. You see, Jonathan loved David more than he loved himself to the point that he was more than willing to be humiliated by taking a stand for David. You see, Jonathan sacrificed his reputation in this world for the sake of David's reputation because he considered David's life more precious than his own. It's just like Jesus, who was willing to be called just about every foul name you could think of, to be accused of being a blasphemer, to be mocked by people he could have destroyed in an instant if he'd chosen to, but he was willing to sacrifice his own reputation in this world for the sake of honoring the Father. Look, if you want your life to look just like Jesus' life, then you're going to have to be willing to suffer the loss of your own reputation in this world in order to make the name of Jesus famous in this world. Yet the truth is, if we're, if we're being honest, most of us are far too concerned about what other people think about us, aren't we? Listen, there's a day coming a day that was fixed in time before time itself, a day when all men will stand before Christ to give an account of their lives. And on that day, you won't answer for what anyone else in this world thinks about your life. No, you won't. On that day, the only thing you will answer for is what God thinks about your life. On that day, there will be no more debates about who Jesus really was. There will be no more arguments about whether or not what he taught was actually true. And there will be no time left for excuses about why we didn't live the life he created us to live. And on that day, there will only be you and him and a reckoning for what you did with the life he gave you. So who cares what anyone else thinks about you? The only thing that matters is what Jesus thinks about you. And just in case you're wondering what he thinks about you, I can solve that mystery right now. He says you're a child of God. Galatians 3.26. He says you're a friend of Jesus. John 15.15. 15. He says you are a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, you're a temple where the Spirit of God lives, 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says, you are the crown of His creation, Ephesians 2.10. He says, you're completely forgiven and cleansed from all sin, 1 John 1.9. He says that you are a citizen of heaven, Philippians 3.10. He says, you're created in the likeness of God, Ephesians 4.24. He says that you are God's messenger in this world, Acts. 1 8 he says you're chosen by God first Thessalonians 1 4 that you are no longer a slave but an heir of God Galatians 4 7 he says you're set free in Christ Galatians 5 1 you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise Ephesians 1 13 he says you're greatly loved by God Ephesians 2 4 and that you are more than a conqueror through Christ Romans 8 37 that's who Jesus says you are now, honestly, 
Who cares what anyone else thinks about you? Why do we care so much about our reputations in this world? The Apostle Paul said we are fools for Christ's sake, held in disrepute, 1 Corinthians 4.10. In other words, we've sacrificed our reputations in this world for the reputation of Christ and his gospel. You understand that's our job as disciples to make Jesus famous in this world, even if that means looking like fools ourselves. Sure, it's dangerous. You bet it's risky. Absolutely, it's radical. But that's exactly how he lived for you. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't. Don't be ashamed to share your testimony. Don't don't be ashamed to walk out your faith in front of a watching world. Don't be ashamed to speak the truth even when it's not popular or well received. Look, don't be ashamed to live your life just like Jesus because I'm telling you, your reputation is not worth your soul. Brother Andrew, a Dutch missionary who was known for his incredibly dangerous exploits in smuggling Bibles into communist countries at the height of the Cold War. He once said this, I am a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? Let's finish the story for today. Verse 35 to the end of the chapter. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. And so just as agreed upon in the first half of the chapter, Jonathan shoots some arrows to the side of David's hiding place in the field and gives the predetermined signal that would let David know that it's not safe for him to stay there any longer at home with his family, with his friends, his life in the royal court. He had to leave. Jonathan says, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan calls after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. That was the message for David. David, you must leave now. Hurry, be quick. Do not stay. Saul's coming for you. 
And as soon as Jonathan sends the boy home, David comes out of his hiding place and without saying a word, he falls on the ground before Jonathan and bows to him three times. By the way, it's the greatest number of times that anyone in the Bible is described as bowing before someone else in a single encounter. There's such a deeply profound admiration between them. And then as David rises to meet Jonathan, they kissed one another and wept with one another, which in ancient Near Eastern custom, was a sign of deep love and blessing and friendship, even farewell, as these two friends knew their lives would never be the same again from that day forward. And then Jonathan sends David off with his blessings, knowing that David's survival would mean that Jonathan would never be king. He would never sit in the place of honor that his father occupied for so long, the place that he could have easily claimed uh, as his own. It's a place that this world would say was rightfully Jonathan's as the king's firstborn son. But instead, Jonathan sacrificed his future according to this world for the sake of David's future according to the will of God. Just like Jesus, who could have easily conquered the Romans and subjugated the Israelites under his rule, which was in fact what the people wanted and expected of him. And yet, instead of choosing to sit on a throne of honor, he chose to hang on a cross of shame. He sacrificed the future that this world had planned for him, choosing instead the future that the Father had planned for him. As dangerous, risky, and radical as it was, he gave no less, and he requires no less of us. Matthew, one of those early disciples, tells this story in his gospel account. He says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, Jesus is ready to leave the crowd of people behind. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, right before Jesus walks away from the crowd, a man says to him, teacher, take me with you. I will follow you wherever you go. To which Jesus replies, no, you won't. You won't. You like the idea of following me. You like the version of following me that you have in your mind, but the reality of actually following me is nothing like you think it is. So don't fool yourself. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Then I'll come follow you. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Matthew 8, 18 through 22. In other words, if you want to follow me, then someone else will have to go and bury your father for you. Because following me has to take precedence over even your family obligations. One of the second generation followers of Jesus, Luke, records this story about Jesus in his gospel account. He says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
The phrase to hate, by the way, and I've told you this before, was an ancient Hebrew idiom. It meant to love less. So Jesus says to these people who are following him around, listen, if you don't love me more than your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, in fact, if you don't love me more than you love yourself, then you cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, to bear a Roman cross in the first century Mediterranean world was to suffer the most horrific death imaginable. So Jesus says, if you're not willing to die to your own dreams and your own ideas about how life should be and your own desires apart from me, then you cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he's enough to complete it. In other words, are you actually considering what this means when you say you want to follow me? Have you thought about what it really means? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In other words, have you thought about the reality of what it means to follow me? Because you're saying you want to, but I don't think you understand what that really looks like. Don't bother if you haven't counted the cost. Verse 33, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has. This is the cost. Of following Jesus. He says anyone who's not willing to give up the future they've planned for themselves. For the future that God has planned for them. Then guess what? You cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 25 through 33. If you're not willing to pay the price. You understand it's not about works. You know that right? We can't earn our way to heaven. That ain't happening. The the Jews tried it. For centuries, it is not happening. We can't. There's nothing we can do to earn our way into God's good graces. It's not about works. It's about submitting your life to the dangerous, risky, radical way of Christ. Jesus says, if you're not willing to love me more than you love your friends, more than you love your family, indeed, more than you love yourself, if you're not willing to die to yourself, If you're not willing to renounce anything else in your life by putting me above everything else in your life, every single other relationship and desire and dream and aspiration that you have apart from me, then don't bother trying to follow me because you cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say if I'm not everything to you, then you cannot be a good disciple. Or a committed disciple or or one of my best disciples. No, he says, if I'm not the number one priority in your life. Then you cannot be my disciple at all. Because being a disciple of Christ means living your life. Just like Jesus. And Jesus gave it all. So look, if you call yourself a Christian which is to call yourself a disciple of Christ. 
then ask yourself this question. Do I actually want my life to look like Jesus's life? Truly, do I want to live a dangerous, risky, radical life full of sacrifice and even suffering? Listen, it's also a life full of miracles and power and peace and hope and faith and love and a deeper sense of belonging than can be had any other way. So honestly, do, do I really want my life to look like Jesus's life? And if the answer is yes, then what do I need to sacrifice for that to happen? What do I need to suffer the loss of for my life to look just like Jesus' dangerous, risky, radical, uncompromising, and undeniably world-changing life? And whatever it is, are you willing to let it go? Are you willing to sacrifice your loyalty to this world, to deny the way of this world for the way of Christ? Are you willing to sacrifice your reputation in this world to look like a fool for Christ? Are you willing to sacrifice the future that you have planned for yourself for the future that he's planned for you instead? Are you willing? Are you willing to live a dangerous, risky, radical life? that looks just like Jesus. Let's pray.